you know, this going slow pace is the thing that I think people have a hard time with today. And so she's giving us permission again, not to rush, which is such welcome advice, I think, for many parents. Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Hey everyone, today we are joined by Leah Martin from MyLittleRobins.com and the Thinking Love Podcast. During the recording of the show, we found out that Leah has also formally taught at a Charlotte Mason school and has her master's degree in reading. So we couldn't have had a better guest for a show where we talk all about teaching children how to read. This show was a bit longer than our typical show, but we had such a great conversation with Leah and we wanted to share as much of it as we could with all of you. I sincerely hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, which was quite a bit. So enjoy the show. All right. So let's see. So this week we're talking about chapters four, five, and six of part five. And we're joined this week by, oh, look, your last name is on there, Leah Martin. (laughs) Wow. And this week we're joined by Leah Martin. Uh, Leah, can you tell us where where people can find you or or what it is that that you do in the, the wide world of the interwebs? Sure. I have a blog at mylittlerobins.com and a podcast, thinkinglove.education. And I talk a lot about the early years. I have young kids. And so I've just been using Charlotte Mason with my little ones and now transitioning into formal lessons. So that's what I'm doing over on my side of the internet. (laughs) How did you find Charlotte Mason? I was pregnant with my first daughter and I interviewed for a job at an Ambleside school. And so I actually was hired to teach fourth grade and I taught fourth grade there for two years. And um, the training was amazing. The internship and they had a week long training that I went to before I even started. And then just the weekly meetings, um, all of it was so inspiring. And that's how we became a Charlotte Mason family, really, even before we had children. So it was really a huge gift to us <laughs> to have that introduced to our family at that time. Oh, I believe, yeah. Yeah. Would so in where were you in the Ampleside school? Like, is it was it here? In, I guess, where you're at in Colorado or was yeah. it somewhere else? Or? Yeah, Ambleside, Colorado. Okay. So is, is going back into the school, going back into the Charlotte Mason school something you would do? Or is, is Charlotte Mason homeschool where your heart is? Oh, good question. Well, I really um, am homeschooling because of Charlotte Mason, if that makes sense. I think a lot of people are Charlotte Mason because they homeschool. Um, but I think eventually... Um, okay. <laughs> it's possible that um, maybe I'll go back and bring my kids with me. And I would actually love to be back into that community again and um, bring all the kids with me and teach um, again. So that's kind of the long-term goal, but we just kind of take it one year at a time and pray about each Mm -hmm. child's education individually and not really make these big mass lump decisions (laughs) at this point. That makes sense. 
Yeah. <laughs> one one year at a time is definitely the way to go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a pastor told us once, like, we jump on a highway and we forget to look for the exit sign. And we just, you know, keep going and just assume it's always God's plan when really he might have something else to say to us. So... <laughs> That's a great way of looking at it. <laughs> That's a very yeah. good analogy. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> very cool. Well, before we record, or before we started recording, we we talked a little bit about our families. Uh, can you can you tell us again uh, what uh, how many kids and what ages you have? Sure. They are seven, four, and two, and I have a girl and then two boys. Very cool. Seven, four, two. So that's that's kind of the same spread mm-hmm. that we have. Mm-hmm. We just have Naomi thrown in there. Yeah, we've got we've got an extra one and then an extra twin at the end. Yes. But all right. No, that that's cool. So that seven and the six, um, yeah, that's Naomi. She's your the six year old. Yeah. Naomi is six. Yeah, okay. Naomi is the six year old. Oh, so sweet. Well, that's fun yeah. to have two close together like that. It is. Well, it, it's kind of fun because we've got the two who are who are old and close together. They're they're what 13 months apart 15 and, wow. a, half. 15 and a half excuse me <laughs> and then the two twins on the other side so they, they both have their their playmates and then the one in the middle she floats back and forth between the two groups Aww. so it uh it, it works out for everyone oh that's so, so far at, yeah. at some so point it'll work out good. for us because they'll get a little bit older <laughs> yeah and hopefully that'll make things easier <laughs> yeah i've heard it's supposed to so <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what we hear we talked we were talking with Rachel. We, thank you. We were talking with Rachel from the Charlotte Mason Plenary for our last episode. And that was one of the things she said is she her kids are a little bit older. They're I think she was saying sixteen and eleven. Yeah, sixteen and eleven. Oh. So she's she's, you know, ten years ahead of us saying, Yeah, it gets easier. And so that was yeah. that was comforting to hear from her. Oh yeah. <laughs> That is encouraging. I love hearing moms coming out the other side and being like, We survived and it's good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. You want to dive in? Sure. sure. <laughs> Chapter four. Reading. So the first thing she talks about is when do you start reading? When do you start doing the lessons of reading? Whether it's, you know, let them uh, acquire it unconsciously from in- infancy upward or whether you defer that effort until he's six or seven. And she says, well kind of both (laughs) (laughs) so she has uh, this example of mrs wesley of john wesley the the theologian of how she would take each child on their special day into the schoolroom during their school hours and nothing else would be allowed to no one would be allowed to interrupt them and she would teach them the alphabet and if they took a day and a half they were uh thought rather dull (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. the whole alphabet. Like, okay. A day and a half. What dull children. <laughs> and then starts start straight out in Genesis, starting at the beginning, uh-huh. starting how to read that. And I love how she carved out the whole day for just that child. She arranged plans for all the other children, and it was just that focused attention on that one child to kind of give them that special responsibility of learning to read, um, even the dull ones. Yes, <laughs> and 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 it 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 makes it important. It makes it an event. I know one thing that we've done is that when the child started 
officially schooling, whether at six or right around six, we bought them a a real Bible. We bought we bought each of them so far only two of them uh, the ESV Bible, the kids Bible that has the pictures. So oh neat. That's that's been our our special. Hey, you're starting school. You're starting to learn how to read. Here's a Bible. You can learn how to read your own Bible. That's a so. great idea, and it's motivating and makes them feel a little more grown up or like you're bringing them into something important. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's really neat. <sighs> so then she says, uh, it is it is much to be wished that thoughtful mothers would more often keep account of the methods that they employ with their children with some more definite note of the success of this or that plan. Okay, moms, really? I want to know what's going on. You're the one who teaches them how to read and what works, what doesn't work. Yeah. I know I've just kind of, and, and I'm I'm excited to talk to, with you about this because all I've done is just read to the kids and then they just kind of started reading. Wow. And so I haven't technically taught reading yet. No. Sure. And That's awesome. And, and I'm sure with, with five of them, somebody I'm going to have to teach. And my mom said, we, there's four of us. And my mom said that she kind of did that with my brother and I. And then my third brother, my second brother came and he just, he wouldn't start reading. Oh. And she's like, I actually had to teach somebody how to read. It's like, <laughs> I don't, I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> that's so funny. And I love how she says in this part that children don't remember how they're how they were taught to read it's just so natural to them that they Mm -hmm. just can do it on their own really but it's it comes so natural it's not really as big of a deal to them as it is to us (laughs) where you know a lot of moms are really worked up and you know nervous about this big thing and kids are like oh cool like I th- haven't I always learned have I always known how to read so it's really awesome that your kids have taught themselves and probably takes a lot of pressure off of you I'm sure mm-hmm. yeah and it's it's funny even back then there were little books entitled reading without tears <laughs> said you know if 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 they weren't there if if these books didn't exist you know they they exist because tears have been shed over learning how to read yeah it's funny. I I think now it has gotten overly complicated, the, the methods. Yeah, that very much use. so. <laughs> I saw someone marking out all the vowel sounds and like all the sounds in the letters. And um, my master's degree is in reading. And I had no idea what all those marks meant. And I thought, <laughs> that is really complicated. Like, I don't think it needs to be that complicated. <laughs> Yeah. So with your with your masters, can you can you give us a little background about what's going on today in in the world of reading? Yeah. Um I mean, it's very heavy phonics instruction right now um that's going on and you know, it's always been like one is this whole reading where you just throw words in front of your children and they pick it up and it kind of sounds like your kids were able to learn to read that way Um, and it Mm -hmm. definitely works for some kids I don't think it works in a classroom setting very well Um, but that's how you know when I was in the 80s how I was taught how to read Um, but then you know for a while they were getting balanced they called it balanced where you would 
produce all these, you know, words in front of children to give them those opportunities, but also teach phonics. Um, and as we continue reading, that kind of sounds like Charlotte Mason's approach to me. Um, so that's kind of neat that it fits in there. Um, but now it's just very phonics heavy. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, it's starting in preschool and then kids are getting tested on words to go into kindergarten. Um, tested on sight words. And really, um, just the reading age has been bumped up and up. So now they're almost expecting fluent readers by kindergarten, um, which, yeah, <laughs> but, you know, thinking of the, um, the child development or Charlotte Mason's recommendations, uh, that's pretty early. <laughs> like that's beyond what, and like a developmental appropriate approach would take. So um, yeah, it's just faster and faster. And I just think you see things online and people are you know, promoting teacher two and three-year-old to read like this. First of all, it's just going to be bashing heads because if the child is not developmentally, re developmentally ready, then it's, it's not going to work. Well, and, and what was it? I think coming up, she says something along the lines of if you force them, they're not going to love to read. And, and, and from what I've heard, the, the ages of learning how to read can vary from five to 10. Mm -hmm. sure. And, and if there's that big of a range and there's somebody on both ends of that spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so if the 10 year old who naturally learns to read closer to 10 is being forced to do this for five years, that's just, Sure. I, I'm, what's the definition of insanity? <laughs> Doing something over and over yeah. and expecting a different result. Yeah. And if if those and, and if those neural pathways just aren't there, then they're not there. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. To be honest, it's just. It is. Think of five years spent feeling like they're not enough or they're not good enough to figure this out, and really they're just not completely ready. Well, and by that time, everything is reading based where in order to learn anything, they need to read. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and it, it's, it's sad to me to think of what that does for the psyche of the child who's mm -hmm. been told for five years that he's slow, he's dim-witted, he's not up with everybody else, he's, he's lagging behind, he should be here, but he's not, that that gives a child such a such a negative outlook on his or her own education. Sure. And self and self-worth. And self-worth yeah. and self-value and self-confidence that that you're cutting the legs out from the child before the child's even getting into learning in a formal setting. Yeah. And That's just sad. the amount of shutting down that occurs when a child feels like that. Mm. It's it's really, you know, I think that self-efficacy, like I can do this, is one of the most motivating factors for a child in education. And if they don't have that, then they're just, you know, not going to be motivated to try or keep learning or, you know, when it's, when they're really ready, maybe not even be able to because they've so shut down at that mm. point. Right. I've, I've been reading the articles and stuff that's promoting more play-based and, and the Finland preschools where they're like, hey, these kids don't learn academics for until they're six. Mm -hmm. Do you think in America that that pendulum might be swinging back towards more play and, and 
and not as pressured early or do you think we're not there yet? Um, well, what's funny about that is the Finnish school system was modeled after the American school system um, in, the, <laughs> in the late 80s and early 90s. So they were adopting some of those things that they had seen. Um, and then it was the late 90s that America just had a big shift Um and I'm not sure that it's shifting back at this point because the people who mm. are making laws are not the people who know education. They're not the people that are advocating for a child's actual needs. Um, so I think it could shift back, but I think there are a whole lot of things that are affecting education right now. And they have a million battles to pick at this point um, or to fight. And so I'm not sure at, that that will be one of them. We just, um, our hmm. state just passed all day kindergarten. And um, now most schools have all day kindergarten and you can maybe find one school in your district that does half day, but you know, you have to drive somewhere further to get your child to that half day program, or you have to um, try to get into that school that might be full. So it's just not really as possible. Um, And Hmm. to me, that seems like a step in the wrong direction of protecting Mm -hmm. a childhood and um, that learning through play piece. that's so important. Yeah. It seems like the politics of education cares much more about the politics than the education. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And, you know, as teacher, when I, as a public school teacher, a lot of the teachers would make negative remarks, how parents were just looking for a babysitter. And, you know, we're not babysitters, we're teachers. (laughs) And with this all day kindergarten, it is just kind of confirmed that teachers are babysitters. Like, they just want all day kindergarten because, they don't know what to do with their children the other half day. And I know that's a generalization and there are many different situations and people might need different things for different reasons. But in general, that was the overall feeling I had is that they were looking for all day babysitting. So I think um, there's, you know, education reform is a big thing that would be wonderful, but it doesn't really seem like much is going in the right direction at this point. And, and then, we, we are recording this on April 1st. We are smack dab in the middle of a national or a worldwide pandemic. And so all the children are home and all the schools seem to be canceled until next school year. And so I, I'm, I, I don't even want to venture, I guess, as to what this will do. But it's such a, a huge opportunity to reevaluate, regardless of who you are, whether you're a homeschooler, private school or public schooler to reevaluate our priorities as a nation and how we're treating children and educators. I mean, I've seen memes being like, these these teachers need to be paid way more. Yeah. I can't handle this. <laughs> I, 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 these teachers need a, a massive pay raise. And I, you see last year there were teachers having to walk out on strike mm-hmm. to get a, to get a, almost this cost of living pay raise. Yeah. And so I, I'm I'm very curious to see where in the next six months to a year this educational political climate will go. Right. You're right. So it's a, a massive experiment. It is. 
I think people will probably definitely change their approach in some capacity, seeing their children be being kids. And I hear even just yeah. on social media quote, posts like getting to relax in the morning or getting to play mm-hmm. and getting to be with my family all natural childhood things that kids are getting to experience right now and I told a friend even people who don't end up homeschooling out of this or changing their plans for education like I hope that this is a beautiful time for them to just experience yeah. this life with their kids that they don't normally get to do yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of spending life with their children, <laughs> let's uh let's rein it back to yes. <laughs> No, Go that's good good questions, good conversation. The alphabet. <laughs> Start here. <laughs> yes. Yeah, she says as for the letters, the child usually teaches her teaches himself. He has a big box of ivory letters and picks out P for pudding and B for blackbird, H for horse, big and little and knows them both. But the learning of the alphabet should be made a means of cultivating the child's observation. He should be made to see what he looks at. And then she starts talking about tracing of letters in the air and and tracing letters from memory. Uh, she talks about, she says, there's no occasion to hurry the child. Let him learn one form at a time. Let him know it so well that he can pick out the D's, say big and little, in a page of large print. And and as we go through this, one of the things I noticed is that Charlotte Mason really wanted the children to be able to identify things on the paper by sight, not to. You, we were talking about phonics earlier, not to, not to have to phonetically sound out the word, but but know the word and know the letter by sight, and have them be, uh, she says later, to have them be as friends to them. Sure. And. and I, I like that. I I thought I thought that was a very interesting take on on how how the alphabet is learned. And it's learned not by looking at an alphabet chart, but by having associative things. Yeah, definitely. It's more of a living approach, I think, if we think of these ideas that are growing in a child's mind, where when we present it like that, it's a living um a living way to get them to keep thinking about it. They see that D in the text and it's not just this isolated D, it's a connection to what they've been doing elsewhere. And so, Hmm. you know, we think of living books, but this is a living idea. Yeah. Well, and she says, let the child alone and he will learn the alphabet for himself. (laughs) But few mothers can resist the pleasure of teaching it. And there is no reason why they should. For this kind of learning is no more than play to the child. Hmm. I, I thought I thought that was kind of fun. I like mm-hmm. this kind of permission she gives us right here too, where she's saying they are probably going to figure it out on their own, but <laughs> you can do it. Like, how, how could you resist? <laughs> like, this is joyful. This is fun. You can't mm-hmm. resist getting to do that. So I like that. I think that. Um, you know, I see a lot of moms with young children say, just let him go, let him be, don't worry about it. But that's a huge, joyful part of childhood, I think. And for me, <laughs> I think probably one of the reasons I wanted to homeschool is because I wanted to be the one to teach my children how to read. So <laughs> I, I like this part where it says, you know, who can resist? Just go ahead. It's fine. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and so she started the she started this with the question, when does a child learn to read? And I think part of the answer is right here. Well, when should he begin? And this is with regards to learning the alphabet. But she says, whenever his box of letters begins to interest him, mm-hmm. it's it's not something you're going to be able to force onto the child because, Crystal, like you were saying earlier, you force this onto the child and you can you can turn the child off to it. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's it's a game finding the name, the letters. And that's yeah. a game. don't don't make them show off. Don't tease them to find them when they want to do other things. Mm-hmm. Just let them play when they want to play it. And letters just are a part of life. Like you were saying, it's just just how you do it, a living idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my two-year-old was actually playing with letters today, which was funny. <laughs> I had my wooden letter set out. Charlotte Mason said, Ivory, you can use wooden or plastic. That's fine, too. <laughs> but... Um, I had the letters out for his big brother and big brother was just not interested. And for the same reason, I wasn't going to force him, but then the little guy got really into it and he was looking (laughs) at that letter and he was flipping it over. And I feel like um, things like that, it was letter A. I feel like things like that would probably drive teachers crazy, but that's what she's saying. Really let them get to know the letter and to really see it and to play with it. And so it was fun for me to watch. And we talked about, you know, the A and and I just made the sound while he played with it and flipped it over. And it was just kind of very joyful and not forced and Really, I mean, the youngest I've ever done anything like that with one of my children, but he wanted to. It was really sweet. <laughs> now, a technical question: Would you do like the A sound like the A or like an ah or what? What uh, letters that have multiple sounds? What sound would you choose? Sure, I'm um, typically the simplest. So the short vowel sound is what I would start with um, for vowels. My son's name is Abram, and so his first name is A, like that sound. So okay. with him, yeah, it made sense, sense. Um, because it was the long A sound. But for any other child, the short vowel sounds only require one mouth move and the long vowel sounds require a a mouth move your mouth changes shape and so um, that's why generally I would go through the whole alphabet and then come back to the long vowel sounds okay thank you yeah which I mean coming here to word making we have the two letters and that make up the syllable at Mm -hmm. we are at home at school and then add the letters b for bat c for cat Fat, hat, mat, sat, rat. And I've heard that book many times. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Or uh, something similar. Sure. Yeah. And um, now they call those maybe word families. And so you can put something together like that and um, just replace that first letter. And there's a lot Mm -hmm. of those. Those are consonant, vowel, consonant words. So any word that you find that has a consonant first and a vowel in the middle and a consonant next would be a really great starting point for, you know, this kind of fun lesson. Okay. That makes perfect. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. Oh, good. <laughs> and she, Charlotte Mason moves on to word making with long vowels. And that's what you're saying. You go through one time with the short mm-hmm. and then go through with the long. Yeah. Real, real quick. Sure. One thing I want to I want to point out here, the very last sentence of the word making is "Do not hurry him." 
Sure. I want to. I want to. Want to interject that because uh, <laughs> throughout this whole thing, Charlotte Mason says, "Slow, slow progress. Short lessons. Little bits here and there. Don't hurry the child. Don't try and force it down his throat. Yes. Just let him." Let him let him linger in it and let him let him enjoy it and and have it become a part of his life. So, yeah, you can continue. But I, <laughs> I wanted I wanted to to bring that up because I, I feel like that's important. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And I wanted to say one along the same lines um, later in a little bit, she'll say, but these are not reading lessons yet. So these building right. words with short vowels um, and even long vowels. This is before the first reading lesson. So, um, you know, again, moms with young children tend to avoid this because they say, oh, hands off until six a lot of times. But Mm -hmm. all of these things are coming before formal lessons um, in this text. So it's kind of interesting for me to see that this is just fun and preparing um, our children in a playful way. So to give it a better uh, wording you wouldn't call it pre-reading you would call it more word games type thing just for uh, mental sanity purposes <laughs> sure that's a good that's a good less schooly way to say it <laughs> and, and now, you know if you google pre-reading it's always like um what you do with kids before you read a book <laughs> and so um you could call it like early literacy but that's also very schooly <laughs> but um yeah. yeah just like letter games or word games or um playing with words or something like that would be you know, a less mm-hmm. a, a yeah. way to kind of break the cultural thoughts around preschool reading, probably. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, she, she and she definitely says that. She says this is not reading, but it is preparing the ground for reading. Yes. Words will no longer be unfamiliar, perplexing objects when the child meets them in the line of print. Yes. So it is. It is all that prep that we're doing in in the form of play. Yeah. And if you spend a long time, like you said, don't hurry them, years doing things like this just for fun, those reading lessons are not going to be difficult and stressful at all Mm. because you've spent so much time and it's a familiar friend. It's not this code to be determined. (laughs) Yeah. So the next section she dives into is early spelling. And she says, accustom him from the first to shut his eyes and spell the word he has made. It's important. Reading isn't spelling, nor is it necessary to spell in order to read well. But the good speller is the child whose eye is quick enough to take in the letters which compose it in the act of reading off a word. And this is a habit to be acquired from the first. Accustom him to see the letters in the word, and he will do so without effort. And this reminds me a lot of the habit of attention is that's that's everything that's in here is the child is needing to pay attention to what's being read and what's being said, what it looks like. And so that's that's a part of that habit of attention being applied to words specifically. Okay, I think it's what it seems like to me anyway. Yeah, I think so, too. And just the whole entire, I think, principle of her reading um, method is to really see and not just learn the it makes this sound or that it's this word but to really see and to have that mental picture in your mind of what it is and that's super important thing 
important for the spelling piece too, to be able to for a child to close their eyes and to see all the letters in the word is going to help them for the rest of their lives in their spelling. I I know for myself, spelling is something that I've, I've struggled with. And my mom has told me that she thinks that it's because I learned how to read just by those sight words. And Mm. so it just kind of was there and I didn't learn the spelling alongside with it. The, the phonic side of how to spell things. Sure. So we'll see what, what happens with our kids. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Yeah, and I think now research is showing that phonics is really what helps with spelling. So having a firm understanding of phonics. Um, and so as we read on, we can see that she doesn't ever call it phonics, but she is saying, learn these patterns and the things that come up mm-hmm. again and again. I don't even know if it was called phonics at that point, but um, so I think she understands the importance of that for spelling. But again, now there's a question like how important is spelling really now that there's spell check? So it's those, yeah. <laughs> those you know, cultural questions the things that have Mm -hmm. changed a little bit from her time to our time (laughs) i know one thing i do is i kind of throw the word out there and be like i think it might be something like this like and then either it helps me or it's like i don't even recognize what you're saying oh (laughs) let me try that again (laughs) yeah yeah it's nice to have the help when we need it but i think charlotte mason would still say it's important (laughs) to yes you know to to teach our children spelling i i I think it's, it goes the same with learning math. You know, yes, we have calculators, we have mm-hmm. computers, but you have to know what's behind it. You have yeah. to know what it is thinking. And I think it's the same with spelling. Yes, we have spell check. Yes, we have word processors, but you have to know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So reading at sight and reading prose. Okay. So this is her process of teaching a child how to read. She says, read the passage for the child very slowly, sweetly, with just expression so that it is pleasant to him to listen. Point to each word as you read. Then point to twinkle, wonder, star, what, and expect the child to pronounce each word in the verse taken promiscuously. So she's introducing these words as um, an entirety all at once and, um, you know, not breaking it down into phonics patterns at this point, but then saying, you know, get the mental image of this and, and this is it. Um, And then that word she's saying promiscuously, she's saying not always in order of the poem that the child might know, but to mix them up into random order because then they're really learning the words and not just memorizing a rhyme that is familiar to them maybe so um i i really like this approach i think it's a really neat way to teach reading this is actually exactly how i taught my daughter to read um when she was about five and a half and was super like begging me to teach her for years (laughs) so um (laughs) it was really fun and then on our first reading lesson she read and she was so proud of herself and i think that's the point of this method is that we want our children to have meaning and not just um something you know well now i know these phonics patterns but it doesn't mean anything right now right away Mm -hmm. they're making meaning and that's really rewarding to them well and it gives you 
desire to do more. Yeah. And and yeah. not not to be bogged down with the the nitty gritty and be like, okay, this is this is too much, but have success right away. That's that's true. Yeah. It's really neat to see. So then at this stage, his reading lessons must advance so slowly that he may just as well learn his reading exercises, both prose and poetry, as recitation lessons. So are we moving from kind of the the pre-literature into academic style with the recitation exercises? I think what she's saying is because it's going to become so familiar in this slow pace that they are going to be able to, you know, do recitation. They're reading things that are of good quality and are not meaningless. She's mentioning down here, she says, parables from nature. So we're not necessarily moving into them reading their lessons or changing the type or the purpose of the lesson. But I think she was saying that at this pace that we're going, they will probably be able to recite it because we're just going Mm -hmm. to move on slowly and not um, whip through just to um, finish reading a poem or something. (laughs) Right. Well, and and taking it this slowly, they are going to learn it quickly. I mean, children, children memorize things quickly anyway. Yeah. And so if you spend... 10 minutes reading these two lines and looking for those words and getting them comfortable with forming the words with their mouth and all of, all of those things, they're going to, they're going to have it memorized. That's true. Yeah. And some of these things that she mentions that she's reading, these things are very suitable parables from nature. um, Mrs. Barbald's prose poems, hymns and prose for children. These are, Oh, I'm reading the Ambleside Online annotated right now, but she's mentioning those things. And that is, Mm -hmm. those are pretty intense first reading lesson text. So, (laughs) um, yeah, I think she's just hitting home here that whatever it is, it's got to be worthy. We're not going to put twaddle in front of them when we're teaching them how to read. Mm -hmm. Well, and she she goes on to say, um, at this point, the child has accumulated a little capital. Uh, we talked at one point about about memory and and the types of memory and the sunk capital, available capital, and spurious memory. And she uses that same language here. She says already the child has accumulated a little capital, hmm. and so she's. I think she's referring back to the habit of remembering here. In that, as you're going through here, you're working with the child on that habit of remembering, and putting putting these words into the the easily recollectable portion of the child's memory mm-hmm. through this process. Okay. So they're able to recall those easily and quickly. Sure. She says he'll know eight or ten words so well that he'll recognize them anywhere. And the lesson has occupied probably ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good connection there. <laughs> yeah, she... I mean, when you think about it that way, her writing is so intentional and, you know, you yeah. can really easily miss things. I don't think I've ever noticed that going through these chapters. <laughs> so way to go. <laughs> right. That's why it's so much fun to to read through these and talk through them yeah. and have other people to bounce ideas off that think differently than, than, yeah, than you. So where are we going now? Well, she, she finishes this section Uh, She says, as for understanding what they read, the children will be full of bright, intelligent remarks and questions and will take this part of the lesson into their own hands. Indeed, 
the teacher will have to be on her guard not to let them carry her away from the subject. <laughs> and that is something that I think is certainly true. Squirrel. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, and again, going back to her habits, she talked about the habit of thinking and how how if you're not if you're not trained in that habit of thinking, your your thinking becomes just a runaway train that mm. that follows random things. And so mm-hmm. I, I feel like this is another place where you, the teacher, and you, the parent, gets to help create that habit of thinking to keep the child focused on on the task at hand or on the on the ideas at hand and not and not have them run off to whatever whatever idea is next. Yeah, and just allow them to take it in whatever direction their brain wants to rather than (laughs) to stay on task i think um the section you're thinking of i think she said it's a what is it a good servant and a bad master (laughs) to (laughs) absolutely so Mm -hmm. to not let those runaway thoughts become the master because if these are the first lessons then you're setting the stage right there for how it's going to be so it's really important i think in that time to not just let them go (laughs) yeah Well, and even from the first, we move into careful pronunciation, Mm -hmm. where at this point, their their mouths should be able to make those sounds. And if you if you and she says you you probably will have to pull them up on the score of pronunciation where they need to have that expected of them Mm -hmm. so that they can be pulled to that higher level and not not just kind of fluff through whatever they're reading, which which kind of brings me into where what about legitimate speech pathology and how how children may not actually be able to pronounce things yet and I don't know I don't know where that falls in terms of what do you expect from them in their pronunciation and what would be age appropriate and what would be uh, expecting too much of them Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure either. I know what amazed me once when I saw um, somebody who, I think her, she was a speech pathologist and her grandson was maybe three or four. What amazed me is he said something that would be probably considered totally acceptable for a child of that age. And she stopped and she said, no, make sure you say it this way. And for me, that was kind of shocking because I just thought, well, I thought, you know, you just let your child go with speech at this age, but she really insisted that he said it correctly. So that surprised me. But um, I guess if you're a speech pathologist, you know, all the, (laughs) all the ways to explain how to do that, um, that the rest of us probably don't know. But I definitely think seeing her set that expectation high was kind of inspiring for me. Well, and we've talked about We've talked at lengths for the last, what, we've been doing this podcast for, what, a year and a half now? We've been talking at lengths about how how intelligent children are mm-hmm. and how quick they are to pick things up and to remember things. I think the only, the only consideration is what their mouth and their, their vocal cords are physically mm-hmm. able to mm-hmm. do. And, and that's where, that's where it would seem to me to be unique to each situation and each child and Mm. where depending on who the child is and what the situation is depends on just how precise the mother wants 
the mother requires the child to be with those words. Sure. And I'll say this too, is if you're, if you're working on getting those words correct, then you'll find those speech impediments and the, the places where the child isn't physically able to do that because you're working on them. Sure. So, okay. Yeah. So you'll know specifically what your child is capable of or what you can expect and what will take some time to develop. Yeah. Just by just by the very act of of working through that with them. Sure. When she she goes on in the same paragraph, but the another advantage of the slow and steady progress is the saying of each word receives its due attention mm-hmm. and the child is trained in the habit of careful enunciation. And so it, it's only those few words so uh, consistently. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like you were saying, you, you find those consistent sounds that they consistently can't do. And you're like, oh, right there. There's the <laughs> issue. Yeah. Which even if you go to a speech therapist, you can, you can present them with this information and be like, here, I need help. <laughs> but this is where I know the issue is. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, but a year's work. What a snail's pace. <laughs> she says, well, yes, but not really. You get two or three thousand years, a thousand words in the course of a year. And then he learns to read. And the mastery of this number of words will carry him with comfort through most of the books that fall his way. Mm. Sure, yeah. You don't have to learn systematically every word of the English language to be able to read. <laughs> and I think that's what she's saying here. But, you know, this going slow pace is the thing that I think people have a hard time with today. And so she's giving us permission again not to rush, which is such welcome advice i think for many parents yeah i would agree with that yeah and just thinking of how even if we are going slow what amazing progress that is yeah yeah well because it it really is i mean like she said you cover two to three thousand words (laughs) that's a lot of words (laughs) and that's a lot of words that that with that breadth of knowledge other words, it would it would seem to me that other words should start coming easier at that point, mm-hmm. because sure. you've you've practiced it. You're in the habit of learning these things. That when new words come about, you can treat them the same way that you've treated all of the other ones, and it should make learning all of the rest easier. Mm-hmm. And then she compares it with the the method that is a, seems to be the prevailing thought of her day. Where she says they blunder through a page or two, and a page or two in a dreary monotone without expression, with imperfect enunciation. When they come to one they don't know, they spell it, and that throws no light on the subject. So then he's told the word and he repeats it, but he's not done the mental effort to secure it. So then the next time he comes to it, he has to do that all over again. And then it comes to an end, and they're bored, and they don't know any new words. And by by mere dent of repetition, by banging your head against the wall, they do learn how to read. (laughs) But consider what an abuse of his intelligence is a system of teaching which makes him undergo daily labor with little or no result. And you were talking about that earlier with they, your your daughter could read that first day Mm -hmm. and that was a result and it made her happy. Yeah, and thinking about modern research, 
there's a percentage of words that a child needs to know for what he's reading to make any sense. And I think it's close to 90%. And I know it, it changes all the time, but, um, or these ideas do at least. But so if a child is struggling to get through a page like this, not only has he physically struggled, but he has not understood what he's read at mm. all. So right. that's the you know, the natural reward, I think, is understanding and reading something interesting. So not only is it difficult, but there's no natural reward. So it's just this labor of, you know, unproductive labor getting through these pages. Which if reading is unproductive, laborious, and boring, then the child's not going to want to read. Exactly. And the child that doesn't want to read isn't going to practice. Yeah. And the child that doesn't practice reading isn't going to learn all of the words and do all of those things. And it's kind of a... It has given him a distaste for books before mm-hmm. he has learned to use them. Yeah. yeah. And that's and that's something that the child will then have to fight against for a long time, mm-hmm. potentially the rest of their lives. Sure. Well, and that's the end of part four. And we go into next a first reading lesson, two mothers conferring. And and they talk back and forth about how they learn how to read. And it, it seems like one mother's teaching the other what she does. Yeah. And she's saying a lot of this is the setup of the lesson, which is funny as compared to today's lessons because um she has to put the words back to back and then paste the pages together and cut them out or something like that um and now we have word (laughs) processing um miracles miracle machines and we can just print out a page of words from a rhyme Mm. maybe like twinkle twinkle little star and then um each word is what you could work on with your child. So instead of having to do that long process, which she spends a long time explaining in this section, she, yeah. <laughs> is it bad that I hadn't even thought about that? I, I read this and I was like, okay, I'm going to go find out like five books of the same and, and cut them out and, and I have one that I haven't. I can just print it and I, hit, I make it be six pages and I just print the dang thing. <laughs> Thank you, Lee. Oh, good. You're welcome. Oh, my. That's really funny. Yeah. Oh. Well, I mean, it, when I'm reading this too, I'm hanging on her every word. So it's easy to get caught in that and think, okay, let's do it. And then, um, but yes, the word processing is a lot easier for this. <laughs> Oh my, this is why we have other people on. Uh-huh. That's why, that's why we talk through ideas. So one of the things that she says is the sand. So let the kids draw in the sand. Mm-hmm. And talks about groups of letters being the sign for the word. Which I think is one of the things that as you're reading to children, and once they're interested, you start pointing out the words so that they connect the words with the sound and the word with the story and how it how it represents what you're saying. And I, I think that's like like she's saying, you know, how does a baby know what a table is? Because they see it, they bang on it, mm-hmm. they hear the word table over and over and over again and they go, Oh yeah, this is a table. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think of a, a baby or a young child who can recognize their names. And, you know, of course, all the grown-ups around them say like, oh, she's so smart. <laughs> and it's just this notion that Charlotte Mason is talking about here. You see it. You're familiar with it. It's around you all the time. You know, yeah. your child sees their name written on church stickers and water bottles and things like that. And it becomes familiar. So um, in the same way, they're learning to read and to see the groups of letters around them and recognize the meaning from it. It's something she talks about in in a bit uh, in the next chapter um, on page 216. She says, the child should be taught from the first to regard the printed word as he already regards the spoken word as the symbol of fact or idea full of interest. Mm. And I think I think that's what we're talking about here is that is that the the word is is a symbol it it is that thing and it conveys an idea mm-hmm. the child the child reads plum pudding because it conveys a far more interesting idea than the word two yeah that's how they get engaged in the lesson i think is when they get excited about the meaning of it um i was just looking back on page 209 and she's saying um Sometimes people give them these fake, right, like fake meanings, like eth, eth, ith, off, uth, mm. or at the very best, the cat sat on the mat. How should we like to begin to read German, for example, by toiling over all conceivable combinations of letters arranged on no principle but similarity, similarity of sound? We should be lost in a hopeless fog before a page of words of three letters, all drearily like one another with no distinctive features for the eye to seize upon. She really liked that idea. (laughs) (laughs) This is is audio only. You have to be even more sarcastic. She really liked that idea. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't lace it enough. hilarious yeah and i i think like there are a lot of things today that are very dull and not meaningful at all to children learning to read and this is pam this is pat pat sat you know (laughs) things like Mm -hmm. that that um are solely for the phonetic learning and not the the meaning (laughs) one of one of the favorites that we have is it's more of a favorite for us and so the kids like it because we'll keep reading it to them it's go dog go mm-hmm. so it is a lot of smaller words a lot of nonsense things put together by page but each page makes sense yeah and the kids read it and they sit there and they they understand what's going on sure and I'm okay with reading it multiple times <laughs> yeah. that's that's one of my big things is if I don't want to read it I'm not going to sit there and read it 10 million times. <laughs> yeah. Times oh. five. Yeah. <laughs> You're yeah, stuck with a book for life when they decide they like it and then pass it down to little siblings. <gasps> <laughs> yep. Chapter six. <laughs> sure. Reading by sight and by sound. Learning to read is hard work. Yeah, this is something that that struck me. Is she said we realize the labor of it when some grown man makes a heroic effort to remedy shameful ignorance, and that is oh so true. And I think 
her choice of words here, again, we, we said earlier that, that she's very purposeful with her writing. I think her choice of words here is, is very much on purpose. Mm-hmm. It's a heroic effort to remedy shameful ignorance. But we forget how contrary to nature it is for a little child to occupy himself with dreary hieroglyphics, all so dreadfully alike, when the world is teeming with interesting objects which he is agog to know. Well, and especially if you've been doing her ideas, you are doing things and yeah. and mm-hmm. objects and nature and outside and and learning through touch and taste and smell. And now you're looking at a page that has black letters on it. A bunch of chicken scratch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like bringing a child out of their natural environment and putting them in a chair, and that would be hard for anyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, we recognize it's hard work, and so we need to do what we can to make the task easy and inviting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, because we've already said, doing this poorly can give him a distaste for books before he has learned to use them. Mm-hmm. And and that's the that's the pitfall that we want to avoid by by being careful with with what we're doing with our children. Yes. And we touched on this earlier, but considering the differences the delicate differences of sound represented by the letter O to analyze and classify it, it's curious for the the philologist, but laborious and inappropriate for a child mm. to to where it it's interesting, but Let's move on to something that they need and can use. I like how she says their study will be a valuable part of education by and by. But meantime, sound and letter sign are so loosely wedded in English that to base the teaching of reading on the sounds of the letters only is to lay up for the child much analytical labor, much mental Mm -hmm. confusion. So she's noting that English is pretty difficult to know all the different patterns and you know things like well sometimes it says this but this time it says this um, and and <laughs> that is just too much for a child at this point but once they have the comfort with reading they're comfortable like they can say oh I know that this says read or it could say read in context you know that's the time mm-hmm. to introduce those things after they're already getting a feel for the anomalies I think and so that's when we can go in and really you know do more phonics and things like that um with them because she's saying there is a time and a place for that but right now when we're trying to um have them enjoy books and learning and reading. This is not the time for that. Definitely. So what is it we propose in teaching a child to read? A, that he should know at sight, say some thousand words. B, that he should be able to build up new words with the elements of these. So continuing to learn 10 words a day and know the the power of throwing new sounds and into new combinations What we want is a bridge between the child's natural interests and those arbitrary symbols with which he must become acquainted, and which, as we have seen, are words and not letters. And back to the the whole letter or the whole word versus the phonetic. I think in this case, she's definitely falling on the side of whole word. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's again that idea that that there's value in the phonetics, there's value in the phonics and the spelling and and the the proper syntax and structure of the word but Mm -hmm. 
at at this time in this place what's more valuable is the recognition of the word mm-hmm. as as a as a symbol oh, oh there's and there's the next quote is that that word as a symbol of a fact or an idea full of interest uh, the words themselves convey such interesting ideas that the general form and look fixes itself on the child's brain by the same law of association of ideas, which makes it easy to couple the objects with their spoken names. Yeah. And then starting this lesson, going into, again, what we we already talked about with the twinkle, twinkle little star and the cutting and pasting and doing these steps and, and finding these words so that they recognize the word and make it from letter and, and make it out of the letters that he has in his little bag and finding it in the, the pa- on the page. And then as we place them in the proper order, that's when they start reading the sentences. Once you have those words, you were, you were mentioning having them, finding them out of order and then moving on to putting them into order. Yeah. She has a couple ways to do that, I think, in this section of seeing, you know, putting them in rows and then reading down the row just so that they're, um, you know, practicing in a different way and not just in order. Mm. And then moving on to, to Tommy's second lesson, he's like, OK, I've got another I've got another reading lesson next day. Mm. But he has instead a spelling lesson. <laughs> <laughs> and so. Does she alternate these throughout the whole time? Yeah, she she does. I mean, I think that we necess- wouldn't necessarily call them spelling lessons today, um, but she's building the words with letters at this point rather than looking at the whole word. And so she's calling it a spelling lesson. Um, and right here she's doing something kind of fun that is good for um, the listening aspect that's really important for young children. She's changing the sound out. So like boat. Now what would happen if we change the first sound to f- float like f- <laughs> and then the child can get the letters and put the f- fl f- and see that it's float so um they're working with words in a different way and i think um in a public school we'd call this word work and not necessarily spelling but since she's building the words with the letters um she's calling this a spelling lesson okay that's good to know what they call it nowadays right yeah, and I do like her differentiation between spelling and reading because um, spelling, you know, is tedious for young children. So I think she's just saying you don't want to spend your whole time working on how to spell all these. And um, one thing she mentions in this section that I kind of cling to, page 220, um, it calls for a little talk. So this is where I think if you do need to talk about a phonics pattern or something that's interesting in the spelling, um, you can have a little talk about it. So um, he will be able to give the sounds of the initial letters and an imaginary word that doesn't fit, you know, stoat, again, calls for a little talk, another interesting word. Um, So if, you know, we do approach something like that, we just uh, kind of address it as it comes. And we don't need to ahead of time say, well, you know, let's make sure that we avoid these kind of words or this word or this doesn't fit the pattern. But um, just as they arrive, we can just have a little talk and we don't necessarily need to load up our lesson with, you know, 
preparations of what might come up or phonics or, you know, words that don't fit. And make a big deal out of it at that time. Yeah, until it comes up. Just wait and cross that bridge when you get there. (laughs) On the next page, she says, but we do not ask him to make a note of this new piece of knowledge. We let it grow into him gradually after many experiences. Mm. And that's talking about where warm and arm sound differently. Mm-hmm. And and so that you just kind of you kind of just grow into it and you you learn it as you're doing it. Yeah, and it says that he can see that it's wrong to say, you know, warm because he's a person. He's a child who can think on his own and he can figure some of these things out as we're going and d- doesn't necessarily need, you know, to be quizzed on it. <laughs> well, and I thought I thought it was interesting backing up one page. Well, I flipped about five. Uh, backing <laughs> up one page, she's talking about moat, and the word note comes up. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's a just kind of a quick little talk. She says, nope, note is spelt with other letters. And then you don't have to tell him what other letters they are. You just move on. And that will help him to, to learn incidentally and very gradually that different groups of letters may stand for the same sounds. Mm-hmm which is something with the English language that is just oh so much fun when you have <laughs> multiple words that sound exactly the same but are spelled very differently and have very different meanings. Yeah. Yeah, that's got to be so confusing for children learning how to read and you know they are so proud of themselves and then they, you know, got it wrong. And so I think that approach, you know, not making them feel bad badly that no this isn't right just like oh it's spelled like this and then moving on and you know not dwelling on it because um we want to be proud of their effort and not necessarily their correct answers um, right but i my daughter has been making to-do lists every single day for our quarantine time and so <laughs> every <laughs> Which she's she's better prepared than I am, so I am all about it. But <laughs> she, um, the first thing on her list has been brush hair, and she spelled it H A R E, and um, I I didn't correct her, and I know that Charlotte Mason says to not let them see the incorrect spelling, but she had already written it apart from me. Um, but just tonight, she was writing her list for tomorrow, and she said, "Mommy, is this how I spell hair?" And I said, actually, Mm. it's H-A-I-R. And it was amazing because she asked me, it wasn't a correction, and I'm sure she will never spell it wrong again because the process of learning Mm -hmm. that was her own initiative. It wasn't me just correcting her. So um, I think there can be some masterly inactivity in some of these things um, (laughs) when we're doing our reading lessons or spelling lessons. That's that's awesome. That's that's so cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was encouraging for me too. Well, and then here in Tommy's new words, he writes them in his notebook in print hand mm-hmm. so that he can take stock of his possessions in the way of words. And so I, this is something I should start with with our children is having both that handwriting of, you know, you write it properly you spell it properly, you can go back and look at your list and be like, mm-hmm. this This is my word. This is how it's spelled. This is how I write it. Because sure. I've had to write happy birthday any number of times in the last couple of days because a <laughs> lot of friends have had birthdays. And so 
we've been writing a lot of birthday letters. Yeah. And and so if they have that list in their book already, then it makes sense. They can just go find happy birthday written in their book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. And then it's their initiative and you're not their like automatic pocket speller that they like Exactly. You know, How do you spell this? You know, they're they're using their own mental effort to find it. And a pet peeve of mine from growing up was being told to go look in the dex- dictionary to find out how to spell something. I'm going, <laughs> I don't know how to spell it. I can't find it if I don't know how to spell it. I've been looking in the S's for 20 minutes and then I found out it started with a C. <laughs> exactly. Like, it's just, uh, that. that's... You know how you, you, you promise that you're never going to do something to your kids? Yeah. My kids will never be told to go look in the dictionary for how to spell something. Yeah. That's, it. That's what I'm going to tell them from now on. That's up to you. But I will not tell them that. That's funny. Oh, well, now we have the voice recognition. So we have the, oh, the Siri and the Google and there are so many shortcuts now that true. <laughs> I don't know. Kids these days. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> Put a little mm-hmm. mental effort into it. But the right. yeah, like a little notebook, you could just do one of the, you know, they're like 80 cents at the beginning of the school year, those little lined notebooks. And then you could do a page or two pages for each letter or something. And then they're making their own little kind of dictionary. But the act of actually writing it in there is much, you know, more memorable than just looking it up. <laughs> I, I like that idea of putting them in based on the letter as well, not just a list as you do it. So get like a 100, 100 page notebook and yeah. have, have two page A. Yeah, have page two pages B. for each letter. That's an interesting idea. Just something to organize it a little bit better for them, you know. Yeah. Otherwise, they'd be looking for that word, you know, for a very long Also, the 20 minutes. Through their 3,000 <laughs> words. <laughs> True, but then they might get the idea to do that themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're on our last section, moral training in reading lessons. So everything is connected with everything else. And r- learning to read also affords you some moral training. So you have no stumbling. No hesitation from the first, but bright attention and perfect achievement. The reading lesson is a delight, of which he's deprived of when he comes to his lessons in the lazy, drawling mood. (laughs) Perfect enunciation and precision are insisted on. And when he comes to arrange the whole of the little rhyme in his loose words and read it off, the most delightful of all the lessons, his reading must be a perfect and finished recitation. So that just kind of puts everything together. You know, where you, you, you draw all of the sides that you're working on and and it comes together beautifully. Yeah. And then there's joy. I like how this says if he, he comes to the lesson, like kind of unmotivated and he misses out on it. I mean, you know, he, um, I'm looking for the part right now, but, um, but every part of the lesson is used for that moral training, um, not just mm-hmm. the the reading part or the message of it, but every single part, even the posture that the child takes um, while reading. So it all comes together. (laughs) Habits, morals, 
reading. It does. It does. Well, and it seems like as we read through these lessons, this is the, the second chapter we've talked about now. Yes, this is our this is the, the second set of lessons we've talked about now, uh, first kindergarten and now reading. Uh, intertwined in this lesson are the habits that we mm-hmm. talked about extensively and that she wrote about extensively as well. And it's interesting to see those habits cropping up and and the masterly activity, the... Uh, inactivity. The, yeah, I'm sorry. Masterly inactivity. I'm good at this, apparently. <laughs> to see these ideas cropping up and, and see her principles threading their way through these lessons, it's fascinating to me. I'm, I'm, enjoying, I'm enjoying learning about th- these lessons. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and when we first hear about habit training, it's so overwhelming. And then you realize that things like these are for habit training too, where Mm -hmm. it's not all this, you know, I have to do this, shut the door, (laughs) like she says in the shut the the door section, you know, it's not all this intentional, you know, plan of making sure he does it every time. It's also ingrained into the lessons and I can be intentional about these to form habits too. And I think that's encouraging to know that um, there's more meaning in everything that we're doing than we could ever know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's it. (laughs) That was, that was the whole thing. Uh, Leah, any last thoughts on, on, I guess what we covered reading and, and the reading lessons and then, Hmm. Oh, that was it. Recitation is the next. But yeah, reading and reading lessons. Yeah, I just um, always like to see the like think of the principles behind what we're reading. And so I really think the principles behind reading instruction are really that our child is able to take in more than we think and that doesn't Mm. need to have things dumbed down for them. So as we are, you know, in, in the literal sense, almost instead of parsing a word into little bits and pieces, we are presenting the whole word and we are not dumbing it down. So I think that's a really important principle right here for um, reading lessons. That's a good point. That's something I'll have to think about as we as we read through these lessons is think about which what specific principle applies to that specific lesson. Yeah. I think it's helpful. Otherwise there's a lot of information. And if you can kind of you know, that's just my mental organization, I think, of how I can yeah. um, understand exactly, you know, what I need to do is kind of find the principle behind it. I like that idea. <laughs> I like that. Well, Leah, I'm so glad that we were able to have you on with us today. It was it was wonderful to talk with you about this. Uh, great uh, talking with you guys, too. Yeah. So one last time, tell our listeners where they can find you. Okay. I'm at mylittlerobins.com and thinkinglove.education. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, Leah, thank you for thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on and joining us. Yeah. It's been great to talk to you. You're welcome. I hope it wasn't too rushed or I didn't rush you guys through it all. I'm sorry. I just kind of 10 o'clock and that's like when my brain shuts down. (laughs) My my mom turns into a pumpkin. Exactly. (laughs) I'm definitely a morning person where you're saying 430. I'm like, yeah, I could do 430. It's just like I'm a morning person. See, and I hear 4.30, and I'm like, well, I could probably stay up that long. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter.